All right, so open your Bibles, 1 Corinthians 11, verses 23 through 34 is our entire big text. It's our first, fourth time in this study. Um, as we go into this text, we are coming back to a text of Scripture that has been about why you shouldn't pervert communion, and communion is so serious. And we've had several studies in this, and over the last two weeks, we stopped and did some studies on the idea of covenants, and I highly recommend you get the podcast if you haven't been here for those studies, or if you were, just to go back, because many people have told me how it really challenged them to think covenant Covenant theology is a very deep matter. It's a lot to think about. We are not covenant in our theology here at this church we are visiting. We are more of a dispensational church, primarily because we teach the Bible method, the Bible's method of how you study the Bible through a grammatical historical approach. That is a deep concept. We, we do not teach it with a grammatical historical theological. So that's a path I don't want to go down right now. But as we look into this text, we understand that the Apostle Paul recognizes that we're dealing with we're dealing with a meal gone bad. All right, and so as we started in verses seventeen to twenty-two, the Apostle Paul was recognizing that this church had these love feasts that they're called agape love feasts, and out of it they would hold communion. And yet people were being selfish and people were getting drunk. Look, verse 21. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first and one is hungry and another drunk. And basically this was a correction. You guys aren't holding communion correctly. You're, you're having these meals, you're having these love feasts. And you are really showing that you don't understand what communion is all about. And you also understand what fellowship is really all about within the church. And so that was a pretty strong rebuke right there, verses 17 and 22. But now he wants to give us an understanding of what communion is all about. And so we went, started this text... And when we came to verses 23 to 34, we saw that the Apostle Paul is beginning to explain communion. And the key verse was verse 26, for he says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We said that was sort of like an identification. It's not just that you are saying, oh, wow, Jesus died. It's like... I want to be associated with this. I stand with this. I recognize what Jesus is all about, who he is, and I want to proclaim his death. And this is no small matter. And I'll tell you, when I came to the verses that we've come to today, because we regularly quote these when we have communion, we hold communion here at our church. We practice it once a month, recognizing that even in this instruction, we'll maybe talk about it a little bit more, is that there's no mandate how often you hold communion. Some churches will do it every once a month, every, some like us once a month, some once a week, sometimes four times a year. There's been no mandate. God gives us our flexibility in that. 
Why? Because we're not just robots. Not everything is going to be the same at every church. There's going to be personality that comes through. There's going to be preferences. But what we need to recognize is that we are identifying with Jesus Christ when we do hold it. And as we go through this text, what we see now as we come to verses 27 through 34, as the Apostle Paul wants to give us more instruction, fill in the blank, you'll be honest to the Lord in your self-examination. Let's read this. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. That word therefore is a connector. In light of the significance of your proclamation, in light of the idea that you really understand who Jesus is, an idea that you are saying, I'm standing with him, therefore, therefore, these understandings need to follow suit. So verse 27, therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. Verse 28, but a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he's to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he doesn't judge the body rightly. Verse 30, for this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that you will not come together for judgment. The remaining matters I'll arrange when I come. So I dump this theology of what communion's all about, but then I bring it back to the context the Apostle Paul in essence is saying is like, let's get this meal right. Now we don't have the meal, but we still have communion, so we can understand that, and we still have church fellowship, so we can understand this too. I just think when I came to this text, if it's not clear, this is really going to challenge us because it challenged me. It, this was just a wonderful week. This is why I love to study the Bible because you learn so much. The Bible is so deep. And when we come into this text, what I wanted to deal with is like the two more like topics that kind of comes through this is the idea of confession. I, the idea that when you come to this text, you notice that as we read through it, the word confession was nowhere to be found, all right? And, and so you look and says, verse 27, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself and then confess, confess. No, there's no, you know, one of the things I tell you when you study the Bible is sometimes challenge yourself what is not there. What, what is there and what's not there? What did he not say? Well, he didn't say, I want you to go into confession. He, he didn't. But I think there's an, a fair assessment as to, as to the fact that it may be part of it. Sometimes, you, you know, you need to confess. Now, let me explain this in context. I think there's a reason he leaves this explicitly out. I think it is because God recognizes sometimes when you come to communion, we can all just be dealing with sin and we all struggle. We're in the flesh and there might be something that you really need to confess, but it may not be. It's not like it's mandated every time. What you're going to see as we go through this is that there's got to be an understanding of your sinful state. There's got to be a recognition of your need for Christ. That's going to be very, very clear. 
But I thought, you know, when we deal with this idea of confession, and this is a John Grissom book, it's called The Confession. I only put that up there because I thought it was a good picture. And I like the fact that it has nothing to do with the Bible. But it's the idea of the fact, I mean, the book doesn't have anything to do with the Bible. I like the fact of Lady Liberty, Lady Justice in the sense of, the fact that there is a legal aspect when we come to communion, legal aspect of us admitting guilt, a legal aspect of being declared innocent are because of the blood of Jesus Christ. So I, I thought that was good. But when we, we look at this, I want you to be thinking, I think it, communion is going to have some aspects of confession. Now, when we deal with confession... There's three aspects that I think you should have in, your, in the back of your mind. Is number one, when you have confession and we have communion, that you always remember the word priest means a go-between. Priest means go-between. We do not have a go-between based upon the book of Hebrews, which deals with priesthood from chapter 6, I think even through chapter 10. The idea of a go-between you go directly to god yourself implicitly you need to understand that you don't need to come to me or any of our elders to go to god you don't need to come to a religious person you go to god directly no priest today and so i think the second thing is this really keeps me or any of our leaders from being elevated above you the pastor the elder the bible teacher we have no special powers we have no ability to declare you innocent to declare you now guilty to give you instructions on how to bring about some type of of cleansing and declaration that you are now free from the guilt of your sin i mean Think about the incredible idea that I could have that power over you where maybe once I got a little corrupt, I could sell forgiveness. I mean, we know that that's how some religious groups do it. That is not what God wanted. He's been moving history to this point where mankind has direct access and you don't need a religious leader. I think historically God had priests in the Old Testament to show the significance of what Christ has done, that people didn't have that access. But now Christ has come and man can have direct access to God. And so I encourage you to read Hebrews, to grasp even the more depth of that. But I also think when you think about confession and you think about talking to God about your own sins, the reality, the third thing I wanted to bring up this morning was the idea is like when we look at this, you really understand that we have a relationship with God. It's like, God, this is who I am. You know, you might come to say, look, this is this sin. You know what I'm dealing with, God. And there's a reality, there's an honesty when you come to communion. That, God, you know that I did this this week. Or you know that this has been like something I've been struggling with with 10 years, 15 years, ever since I became a believer. There's, there's just, there's no like deception there's a reality in the fact that you're going to be honest with God. I don't think, and there's nowhere in the text, and somebody could challenge me with this, where all of a sudden you come to God and every sin is going to be confessed and, and you're absolutely perfect to take communion. It's more, you're going to see as we move through this, 
whether it's an honest awareness of how much you need Jesus, how lack of perfection there is in you, there is a specific mandate on how to deal with confession, okay? Um, I think, and I just know, keep in the back of your mind, when James chapter 5 talks about confessing your sins to one another, there, there is a sense, I think, when it's well-known sin or maybe it's something that you've done individually, but it's not coming to a priest or a pastor to confess sins. So, again, I read through this, and like you look at verse 28, but a man must examine himself, and so doing. Well, the examination may include confession, it may not, but there's no explicit instruction, confess. What we see, though, as we go through this, is as we go through this, the second major topic that I work through this is that this really hits home that God doesn't want us to be people that are going through the motions with like a ritual. Let me define a ritual. Rituals are a set of a form of worship that involves repetitive physical actions with really no mindset. Now, those of you who know me, I'm aware that we're living in a zombie culture. <laughs> There's zombie movies everywhere, and I absolutely hate them. But I thought I would use this picture because if you're not aware, a zombie is supposed to be the living dead, right? And there's all kind of horror movies, horror TV shows where the living dead, people are dead, but then they come back alive and they move. This is the greatest text against zombie Christianity in the Bible. This is what blew me away this week, all right? That God doesn't want you to go through the motions and participate in church and especially in communion where you just do it with no thought in mind. And I'm telling you, it shows you the serious nature of this. We are not to have a zombie church, okay? So here's my joke. <laughs> All right? Joke. Do you know there are two kinds of people that are in cults? Answer. Those who can lead the rituals and those who chant. <laughs> See, I needed to actually put that print up because I think if I said those who can't it wouldn't have come off so i had to write it out okay all right here are a bunch of non-scriptural rituals you see people they somewhat they'll go to a church and they'll genuflect they make some sign i watch sports people do this all the time do you really understand you're trying to communicate with god there are religious groups that they hold communion and the whole communion you hold the host the the bread or the cup above your head and like as if that's some type of special thing prayers liturgical prayers it's not that having a liturgical prayer in and of itself is sinful but god even warns us in matthew chapter five i don't want you just to have this vain repetitive prayer readings and responses again these aren't wrong in and of themselves but if you do them, you better put effort and you better be aware you can't be a walking zombie. And, you know, people could even get into this idea, hey, if, if I eat, I better pray. There's no mandate that every time you eat, you have to pray. I mean, I want people to pray. I, I think it's a good thing to do. But 
I don't want to do this where I'm just going through the motions. And I know that we live that way. I was thinking about it, you know, sometimes when I drive, do you ever drive and you get home? You're like, how did I get home? <laughs> how did I drive? How did I get home? I don't know how I got home. Did I, did I, did I, did I go through red lights? Did, how did I make, you know, and we, we go on autopilot. This is the text that tells you, at least when you come to communion, when you come to church, don't go into autopilot. All right? There are good practices that we don't want them to become rituals. Praying, attending church, giving, taking communion especially. All right? Now, it's very clear that when we go through life, there's habits we have. And, and I think passages like this give us a good push, kick in the pants, if you will, just to be cognizant of the fact I am not to be a walking zombie. I'm not supposed to go through rituals. And especially when we talk about communion. Now, you go read through this text and you say, where are we dealing? You know, what are we talking about when we talk about communion? Well, we're talking about, look, verse 27, therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord. And, and I thought this would be interesting that you see this. You know, this examination time, there are four names for it. Number one, the Lord's Supper. If you look up in verse 20, it says, therefore, when you meet together, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. All right? So we talk about this examination time as the Lord's Supper. We also talk about it as the table of the Lord. Just jump over one chapter. In chapter 10, verse 21, um, the Apostle Paul was giving instruction. We've gone through this passage, and he says, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. The idea of coming to, to worship God, taking part of communion, the table of the Lord. So this examination time has that understanding. Then it's also called communion. If you go back to verse 16 in the 10th chapter, and it says, is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread we break a sharing in the body of Christ? That word sharing in the New American Standard Bible is the word, the Greek word um, based koinonia, which koinonia, which is sometimes translated communion, fellowship, sharing. That's where we get the idea that this examination time, we call it communion. I, and you notice the most time I, I, I do reference it that way. <clears throat> and then also, if you jump back to chapter 11, you hear of religious groups calling it to Eucharist. And, and you think, is that a really bad thing? No, it's not. I, I think... Um, Gil Rue, who we have a lot of his material over here, um, he wrote his dissertation, I think, on the Eucharist. He called it the Eucharist, okay? And the Eucharist is just the Greek word Eucharista, which means to give thanks. You look in verse 24, it says, and when he had given thanks. And so the idea of communion, this is where we got the title, the Eucharist, all right? So those are, these are the four main names for this examination time. So... Here we go, as we go into this, we don't want to be guilty. Look at this. Verse 27. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. How in the world are we guilty? To be guilty is like you've done wrong and it's the declaration that you are in trouble. I mean, you know, right? if I said you're guilty, 
and a judge declared you guilty, you, know, you could be paying a fine, you could be going to jail. Are we talking here of sending people to hell? I don't think so because we're going to see the penalty is that people get sick and people die. There's no explanation that people go to hell, all right, for this. There is the idea, though, you've done wrong and that, that somehow, some way, you haven't done the right thing. And there's a declaration of guilt. Now, verse 27 elaborates in the sense that you've, you haven't done it in a worthy manner. You've done it in an unworthy you haven't met the standard. Well, what way have we not met the standard? Verse 28, but a man must examine himself and in so doing, he's to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. This idea of examining, judging, I think it appears like six times in different forms. The idea, like I had that magnifying glass earlier on the illustration is that we're to look at ourselves. So I'm gonna look at myself and so I don't want to be guilty of the body and blood in the sense of like, did I cause Jesus to die? Or is it more like the fact in Hebrews where it talks about the fact that if you willingly reject Jesus, it's sort of like you're, you're spitting on him. You're disregarding it. Now, in the book of Hebrews, I believe that is a judgment on the unbeliever. They do explicitly do not go to heaven because of that but for us i think the idea here of the examination is that we are not thinking of who jesus is thinking of the significance thinking of how we were part of this and now we're this part of this in the sense jesus died because we're sinners right and, and, and when we come to communion, it's to be a reminder. It's to keep reorienting us and that it will help push us along the idea that I'm not supposed to be playing with sin. So, you know, you may struggle with something 10, 20, 30, 40 years, but there's a sense where you're striving and fighting and battling it. I mean, there are things that are inside me that I, I struggle with, but at the same time, I'm not practicing it. Or if I do slip up, Every once in a while, I'm confessing it and coming back to God. And there's no dishonesty. There's a sense of an honest relationship. There's a genuineness. I, you know that that was a pretty popular term over the past decade or so to talk about our relationship with God. I'm genuine. In the sense, God, I've come to communion and you know that I'm honest with you. So I, I don't want to have this guilt of coming to communion and not being honest in my examination. So he's describing it as eating the bread, drinking the cup. And so as we go into this, we are to contemplate this, Jesus Christ, our hope. And he says, verse 29, for he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. It's verse 29. So we're doing this exam, and the word for begins to give us an explanation. And I got to tell you, verse 29 is one of the most difficult passages I have ever personally exposited. And you may not catch it, but at the same time, it's one of the best eye-opening ones. And I think you'd have to start it. And let me just explain I personally struggled 
on the expression, the body. I had a view, I just want you to know, this is the way I personally take my own study. I would have thought the body is myself. So read verse 29. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks of himself, if he doesn't judge himself rightly. But as I studied this text, nobody had my view. (laughs) It's really humbling. I talked to a few people and they agreed with me. But the majority of the views were just two camps. Either the body refers to the church body, so if you come and you're not thinking about others for a meal time, I'm being selfish, I'm not thinking about how everyone in the church is doing. That was one view. But the majority view, the historical view, is that the word body there refers to Jesus. And the idea then were for myself was, since I could not find any written commentary that said it was self, I finally said, there's a principle, and this I want you to learn. There's a principle called the checking principle. And that is when you go and you, you study something and you come up with a view and you say to yourself, I have found something in the Bible that nobody else has ever found. That's a problem. You mean 2,000 years the church has existed and nobody was as smart as you? <laughs> I want you to always remember that. And, and this is where like, I'm humbled. And I came to this and I said, wait a second. If I'm the only one that's ever come up with this, then I'm probably wrong. <laughs> and so I'm going to go with what the majority of people hold and I'm going I'm to have this in the back of my mind and I'll say that the body there is the reference to Jesus. And the idea is that you were to think about Jesus. All right, so I, I'm, I don't want to confuse you too much, but I'm just letting you know that's, that's a good study practice, knowing the hermeneutical principle called the checking principle that even keeps your pastor in check. And, and, and so I'm, I'm telling you the historical view is that people look at this and they say, because you have the article, the body. Now, I understand people will say, Jesus, when we're talking about him in this context, the word body has been used, but every time it is been used, it's body and blood, body and blood, body and blood. But now he just says the body. And that's why some people think he's talking about the church body, but he hasn't used the body in this context for the church. So some people think he just, and the majority of people think he just got brief and he just said instead of the body and the blood, because in verse 29, he's already talking about eating and drinking, eating and drinking of the body. All right, so let's settle on. He's talking about the body of Jesus. All right, so once we get that, here's where we go. When you come to communion and you come and you think about Jesus went to the cross, if you take it in a rote, zombie kind of way, if you just go through the motions and you don't really think, oh my goodness, the God of eternity, the God who created the entire earth became a human being to die to pay the penalty for my sins and I need to take my sins serious and I need to take my life serious and I need to recognize, oh my, and I need to be honest And it could just be a literal sense of appreciation. God knows that every one of you guys are going through different paths. But God wants you to recognize, and he knows when you take communion, that you are being honest in this examination. That there's an honest and recognizable recognition of who Jesus is and what he's done for you. 
And so please recognize this. I think this tells me, again, God doesn't want me to just go through a ritual. We are not to be ritualistic people. And this really emphasizes relationship, doesn't it? Isn't that exciting that this is the kind of God that we have? And he could have just said, oh, I'm just so glad I got 100 people going through communion. And they're all doing, taking the bread and eating the cup, drinking the cup. But the reality of it is that's not what God wants. God wants you to be engaged. And so here's the warning. And he says in verse 30, for this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. That idea here is not the idea of people going to hell, but God bringing sickness and bringing death the idea of sleep is a euphemism. Like I think in Acts chapter seven, when Stephen dies, I think he goes into sleep. First um, Thessalonians, the rapture passage, it deals with people who are asleep, they're dead. The idea of sleep is death. And I've shared with you before that I'm very much aware that God brings discipline. Not every sin where someone is sick deals with the idea of somebody being ill um, because they sinned. So just because someone's sick doesn't mean they're in sin. But the idea here is that God does do this. And I think it's kind of interesting, just as a side note, um, when he says many of you are weak, that's a word that is used, oh, I can't tell you how many times in the Bible, but it's one of the most, it's a word that I struggle with because half of the time it's used for like weakness in the sense, I, I just can't go on. And half of the time, it's used for sickness, actually being like physically ill. And, and it's main, one of the biggest debates on whether it's to be like this, not having enough strength or being physically ill is in the James 5 passage when, you know, if any of you are weak, call for the elders. Or any of you are sick, call for the elders. It's the exact same word that's translated weak here. A different word for sickness is used in the second line of verse 30. It's confusing you. But I think the James passage is dealing with a weakness due to you're very much aware of your sin. And somehow it's a public thing. And that's why in James 5, he's saying, call for the elders. It's not the fact that just somebody is sick, like, oh, I've got some arthritis and I need to call for the elders and get those people anointed. I think there's some type of public sin. You call for the elders and you're confessing that sickness, that weakness due to a sin that God is cognizant, you're cognizant about. And, and I'm, I'm very much aware that when believers are in sin and God brings judgment on them in their life, they know it. And I've shared with you, I've had Again, people that have told me God has brought them through sickness, they know that they are in sin. And so here's the question, all right? You know, if we're being warned, judgment begins with the household of God. And God is saying, listen, you better recognize that I'm not playing games here. And I don't care who you are. I don't care if you're a pastor. I don't care if you're a you know, new believer, old believer. Judgment starts with the household of God. God disciplines his children. And this is a theology that we need to understand. Unbelievers live good now with no discipline. Then get judgment forever in the eternal state. Psalm 73 is a psalm. We don't have time to go back there. But it begins where the psalmist says, my foot almost slipped. 
And he goes on to talk about how unbelievers live lives with no discipline. And, it's, and, and unbelievers who hate God actually get blessed. And then it's like in verse 17 or 18, he says, I, 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 this is the way I was thinking. And I basically was about to walk away from God. What do you mean walk away from God? Well, God, here I am living for you and my life is because I'm a believer, I'm getting disciplined, I'm going through hardships, I'm going through difficulties, and what good is it to be a Christian? My life is filled with hardships and difficulty. And then he says, basically, I'm going to walk away from this. And I want you to always remember Psalm 73, because then he says, until... Until I came to the throne room, until I began to contemplate their end, they end up being judged and they lose in the end. What good is it? Why does judgment begin with us? Because believers get disciplined now, but can get holy lives in the eternal state. Turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. I, I, I think this is the one I didn't want you to miss. It, it, this is the passage you have to know as a believer. When you look at difficulties in your life and, and how things are going on in your life and sometimes they're hard and they're difficult, it's because God is molding you and shaping you and things that should be, you wish that would go easy and they don't. It's like, why? It's because God is more concerned about your character. And so he says, you know, in chapter 12, book of Hebrews, the author talks about the witnesses that people are watching us in heaven and the examples of people who've gone before us. And he says this in verse 4, look, as you go through these difficulties and these hardships, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood and you're you're striving against sin. And, And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, as he quotes, he says, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and scourges every son whom he receives. God disciplines. So like in our house this morning, one of my children was like, why do I have this blah, blah, blah penalty? Why don't you treat me like this? And the answer is because we love you, because we care. If we don't care, then we don't care how you act. That's what God is doing. He brings these trials and these difficulties in your life to wake you up so you don't go through life as a zombie. And so he, and so Look at verse 7. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as sons, male, female, child, you know. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? So, you know, if you want to be a lousy father, you want to, you know, go to the school and be worst father of the world? Because, you know, I got one of those T-shirts that says world's greatest dad, and I just love it. And then I think I got other stuff that my kids finally gave me, and I worked really hard for those. I don't know when the vote went over, but I'm still thankful. But if I wanted to, if I wanted to be worst dad in the world, you know what worst dad in the world does? Worst dad in the world doesn't say anything. Sees that children doing things and doesn't say anything. I saw a kid yesterday, not my kid, but I know because I care for him. I said something to him and he didn't like the fact that I said something. But I love these kids that I deal with, not even outside of our church. Listen, God says stuff. God does stuff. He gets involved and he disciplines. 
So verse 7, it is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father doesn't discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Listen, if I'm drinking and I am someone that's doing sin or I'm in pornography or I'm in the thieves or thievery or if I'm doing stuff and God isn't bringing any judgment... Somebody said to me, why in the world did this happen? And I said, you got caught because God loves you. If you're doing things right now and you're not getting caught, you better be terrified. Because God says, fine, you go right ahead because you're not my child. But if you're struggling and say, God, every time I do something, I get caught. Every time I get found out. Every time it, it, you know, something happens to me where I f- suffer the consequences. Then that's indication that you're a believer. And, and that's not where sometimes the world would say, God, God doesn't love me. God doesn't care for me. It's just the opposite. God very much cares for you. God doesn't want you to get away with anything. So you've got the person that's out there and they're a drunk and there's nothing ever happening to them. They're in trouble. They're in trouble because ultimately they're the Psalm 73. God says, go right ahead. But in the end, you lose. But if every time you're getting caught, every time you're, you're, you're stealing things, you're looking at pornography, you're, you're doing things and God is bringing things to interject into your life. You're lying. You're, you're, you're not caring about something. God is telling you, look, verse 9, furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. We get disciplined now. Okay? So he wants us to live holy lives now and then ultimately in the eternal state, fully blessed. Verse 11, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful. You better believe it, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So anyone who's gone through this knows. You start getting your life together, you put your head on the pillow, and you know there's no fear that all of a sudden someone's going to, you know, the police are going to come to my door in the middle of the night, take me away because I've done something wrong. You can just elaborate that so many ways. So I'm telling you, you know, believers need to know Hebrews chapter 12. So look, go back to 1 Corinthians 11, and this, I'll wrap this up. So he says, verse 32, but when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. The world, the unbelieving mass of humanity. It's God so loved the world. Unbelievers, Okay. People who have rejected, we're not going to be disciplined. Penalties, judgment, things to be instructive aren't coming to the world. They're coming to us. So when he wraps it up in verse 33, he says, So then, my brethren, he's talking to believers, when you come together to eat, this is the agape family, this is the church gathering, wait for one another. Why am I waiting? Because I recognize the purpose of the gathering isn't just to get myself fed. It's for the collective whole. Yeah, it is for the church body. And so by waiting and giving respect to other people and then eventually sharing is indicative of the fact that I recognize the purpose of this meeting. Verse 34, if anyone's hungry, let him eat at home. What do you mean eat at home? Well, 
obviously, maybe this was in the afternoon. This, wasn't, this isn't like our afternoon lesson. It's our, our luncheon today. Um, it's the idea of they had this meal, and it was probably in the evening. And so he says, look, I don't want you to come starving. It'd be better for you to eat at home and then come to this because the, you're missing the purpose of the koinonia meal. So verse 34, if anyone's hungry, let him eat at home so that you will not come together for judgment. Because if you came and you didn't think of other believers and you ate your food and you, you said, well, I need to get my drink and I'm going to get drunk, uh, he said up there, then God is saying, you're going to be judged because you're not recognizing what Jesus did. And, and you're not thinking about Jesus and the seriousness of this. The remaining matters I will arrange when I come, which is an interesting idea that not everything that happened with the Corinthian church was recorded. And the Apostle Paul had matters that we'll never know. What did he deal with? What, what was he talking about? I don't know. It just shows me that there was a real relationship that he had with the church. And, and he had different agendas. And, and, and the Apostle Paul knew these people. There's so many ways you can go down that, just that very last line. I don't want to blow over it. But I put this up here over the past few weeks. It's no joke. Communion. And so I write this. Communion is a serious matter. No matter what, if you call it the Lord's table, Lord's supper. But one thing you are not to do, and that is to take it ritualistically. You are to have a self-awareness that comes from you going to God directly, not through a priest. No priest is involved. No priest is needed. But what is needed are the facts regarding who Jesus is and what he did dying on the cross. When you look at your participation in communion, you know you cannot go through the motions. It should make you think about how you act with other believers before communion as well. Because now you know God is serious about ensuring that believers treat one another in love. So one writer wrote, are rituals wrong? No, not inherently, but empty ritual is wrong. As is any ritual that replaces, obscures, or detracts from a vibrant relationship with Christ. Are rituals commanded in the church? No, except baptism and communion. God sees the heart and, he, and seeks those who worship him in spirit and truth. Rituals can be beneficial, but external rites should never be allowed to replace inner devotion. But for you to do a correct examination, you have to be honest. There is an admittance that you need Christ. There is no way you can be sin-free, right? I don't want anyone to ever think, oh, I can't come to communion because I'm, I'm not sin-free. None of us will ever be sin-free. But there is, there cannot be a heart that doesn't care. Put it like there, there must always be a heart that cares. You, you might be battling in sin and you talk to God about it. It's very important, too, that you realize Jesus was no ordinary person. You believe he was God who died the penalty for your sins. And as a believer, this should be taken very serious because this is a memorial service, a memorial in which we remember what Jesus has done for us. So let's remember. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. How you put things in your word. We're going to a meal gone bad. And we're dealing with selfishness. We're dealing with drunkenness. And then you give us this explanation for communion. The identification, how serious we have to take the proclamation. How seriously we have to take the examination. How this examination works it would have been wonderful if you just gave us a four-step process, but you didn't do that, Lord. You gave us a general thought, 
And I hope that people here are grasping the idea that your spirit will lead whether they need to confess, whether they need just to cry out in, in appreciation of who Jesus is. It's so exciting to know this is the way your word works, that you are not looking for robotic responses from us. Oh God, I hope there's a sense of joy in the people like there's a sense of joy in me to know this is who our God is. How excited it is to have this type of relationship with a God who's instituted this practice. And I pray that our people really grasp this. And if there's people here that are visiting that don't know you, or there's people who regularly attend here and they don't have this relationship, maybe they're looking at the fact that there's been no discipline in their life. Maybe they're gonna cry out to you and finally say, God, discipline me, get in my life. And that's the cry of faith. That's the sinner's prayer that they give. God, there's no discipline in my life. Bring that discipline because I wanna be in heaven. I wanna be right with you. I wanna be your child. Oh, pray, I pray, God, that perhaps someone is praying that right now. We thank you, God, for the discipline you bring in our lives. It is hard. It isn't joyful. It is sorrowful. And it's sad, if we're honest, that we have to bring that into our relationship with you. That sadly, we who know the right way can continue to repeat sin and do things that dishonor you and make you unhappy. And Father, I'm hoping that even fathers, mothers learn through this too, how important it is to be a disciplinary parent, how to interject that to show your love for your children. Thinking of a situation um, that when one steps up, it shows love. May we, as parents, continue to show love. Thank you, God, like I said, for this text. It's really challenged me, not only from an expositor, um, but from just as a believer who walks with you. And I pray, God, that others have that same appreciation because we love you and we're just amazed at the depth of your word. No shallowness. In Jesus' name, amen.